Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is your host, Matthew Kirby, and welcome to a new season of the Young Black HR Podcast, brought to you and sponsored by Honest Human Resources Consulting. Our mission is to have meaningful conversations by amplifying voices and perspectives we need to hear in today's times. The Young Black HR Podcast challenges how we define a human resource through discussion of our talents, abilities, and backgrounds that we bring to the table. Now I have one question for you. How are you a human resource? Enjoy today's episode. This one's on me. Hey, what's up? What's going on? Welcome back to another episode of the Young Black HR Podcast with your host. Y'all know how I do it by now. It's me, Matthew Kirby, and I am excited for not only today's topic, but really having this conversation with an amazing guest, a wonderful person, and really a person of many talents for sure. So let's not waste any more time and get right into it. Today's special guest, this week's special guest is Kevin Nichols. Kevin, what's going on? What's up? How you feeling? Not much. I feel great. Good, good. It's, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. But before we get into it, because, you know, I'm, I'm always chit-chatting a little bit about emerging talent and everything. But before we get there, before we set the stage, why don't you tell people about yourself? Well, uh, long and short of it is my nickname is a social engineer. Uh, comes from my overall of my career. Uh, spent a lot of time doing math and science stuff when I was a kid. Uh, worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and decided uh, that I didn't want to be a mechanical engineer like I always wanted to be. Uh, but I ended up spending about 12 years in the legal industry doing uh, legal technology, getting into the tech side of my brain, but also thought I wanted to practice law and then worked at a big law firm and decided I didn't want to do that either. So uh, <laughs> Ended up starting my own consulting practice in around 2012 or so, um, doing all the things that I loved out of the legal industry and started a nonprofit organization about six years ago to address the lack of diversity in the tech industry. So ironically, I'm back into tech and uh, I go by uh, the quote, um, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And so um, that being said, not even a lawyer or an engineer, but the quote for me means you're either part of the problem, or part of the solution. So that's uh, uh, in a nutshell, who I am, my career, and what I'm doing now. Absolutely, I appreciate it. And you know what, it's so funny when I, uh, especially when we talk about folks being lawyers or thinking they wanna be lawyers, they always have, it seems like the same narrative, get into it. Whatever reason, you're like, nah, I'm going to go and do something else. I, I love it. It's a, it's always a reoccurring theme that I hear over and over again. But even just thinking about the many, the many platforms, the many things that you do, two of them, at least for me, stand out. And I want you to share a little bit more about these two in particular. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you're doing at Berkeley Labs. And also tell us more about the Social Engineering Project. Well, uh, I've been working with, thanks to Barbara Lee, actually. Um, she introduced me to Berkeley Lab around 2016, 2017, to help them with their diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. And since then, I have been consulting with them uh, for a while. And last year, or earlier this year, actually, during the pandemic, uh, an opportunity presented itself for me to come on full-time 
and help them uh, with their internal and external diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. So I'm the senior diversity integration partner there at Berkeley Lab. And I also run the Social Engineering Project, which is uh, an organization that I started with uh, my friend, Dr. Brian Brown, who's a professor at Stanford University. We went to high school together with high school friends and together we've been putting um, culturally relevant STEM pipeline programs together for high school students, middle school students, and college students for the past, I guess, eight years um, informally, but about officially the past five years together. I love it. I love to hear. And it's, it's really one of those things where even when I first learned about what you're doing, you know, with the social engineering project, it's one of, it's one of those things where I was like, damn, finally, something you know, to help our kids, our black and brown kids out, you know, just with crossing that hump, uh, leaping those hurdles, breaking those ceilings, right? And really just being able to diversify tech. We're going to get into this more throughout the conversation, but I always like to say it anyways. PSA for folks who are listening. Remember, tech, getting into tech isn't just limited to doing technical jobs. There is such thing as being non-technical, but in tech. But we'll cross that bridge a little bit later. Sometimes I just got to be a broken record, Kevin. But when I think about, you know, this, this idea, this thing, you know, this whatever you want to call it for those of you that are listening, when we think about emerging talent. So for those of you that may be tuning in for the first time or this is your first interaction with me, by now, hopefully a lot of people should know I come from a more HR background, been doing it for the past decade or so, feel like I've done everything under the sun at this point, but I am currently in tech at Netflix. So going back to being non-technical in tech is possible. Let me show you how to do it. But when we think about emerging talent, Kevin, what are some things that come to your mind? How do you kind of really break that down and say, hey, here's who we are classifying and deciding who is emerging? or not, but also when we think about it from a talent perspective, what does that mean? What does that look like to you? Well, for me, I'm, my job is as a social engineer is a disruptor. So I'm breaking the structures that are in place of you either have to go to a, a top tier school in order to be considered or the elite uh, HBCUs, the handful of those that um, tend to get recruited from the most. You don't go to these particular schools, then you're pretty much on your own. So you have to change um, the way that structurally corporate America looks at talent and where they find talent and what makes someone talented. Uh, so for me, it's all about giving ex exposure to people who wouldn't normally get exposure and also teaching them skills of personal branding and networking to allow themselves the opportunities that they should get um, that anyone else would get um, if they came from a school with a strong alumni that were doing this already. No, and I, I really, I really appreciate that. And even thinking about, you know, really finding, and I would even argue when I think about emerging talent, when I think about, you know, diversity and inclusion, we aren't necessarily even talking about this idea, this concept, this notion of a needle in a haystack. You know, sometimes diverse talent is hidden in plain sight. A lot of times diverse talent isn't hidden at all, but don't let me start ranting on, uh, you know, on that. But with that being said, you know, I think it's one of those things. And Kevin, I'm sure you've probably heard this as well. But when you think about like CEOs and other high level people and they're like, where are all the talent at? Where are all the, you know, the black engineers or the, the black marketing people or the this or the that? 
What, what do you what do you think about that? You know, and and what's kind of your approach to that as well? Well, in, in my line of work, I get that question asked all the time, and unfortunately, you know, I'm dealing with uh, particularly traditional STEM, so math, science, chemistry, physics, and engineering. You know, at, at Berkeley Lab, we're looking at PhD talent, you know, postdoc talent. Where do you find, you know, a nuclear physicist or, a, you know, <laughs> you know, these are these are things that are not so easy to find. Mm -hmm. Pipeline questions come up all the time. Uh, and then you look at, you know, HBCUs particularly have the most number of these type of folks graduating at high rates, you know, all over, you know, the country. So it's really about making those relationships, creating those strategic partnerships and letting people know that talent exists. They're out there and you just have to go find them. Uh, I don't believe in what they say about, you know, well, we, there's a lack of talent pipeline, you know. So that's another reason why the social engineering project exists. We create, we're creating that pipeline from middle school all the way up to college and getting young kids not only interested in computer science and, you know, when people say tech, they think of, you know, coding and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's all different types of tech that we need, particularly we need black and brown civil engineers, electrical engineers, uh, you know, aeronautical engineers. So these folks that that you know, fly the planes, build the planes, these kinds of things. We need those folks there as well. So our philosophy is if you get them to college, they have a lot more opportunities to excel than setting them up to say, hey, you got to go to a boot camp or something like that, uh, an internship maybe. And fingers crossed, hopefully you'll network and or get a, a full-time opportunity that will take you where you need to go. Yeah, I, I like how you mentioned, you know, earlier when we think about not just looking at, you know, existing diverse tech, but also going back when we think about school age children. I think it's one of those things. And Kevin, I don't know if you was like me or, you know, had a had a phase in your life where you're just going back and forth about what you wanted to be in life. But I think that is really interesting uh, when we think about how to best reach right those next generations. But with that being said, and even as a parent, one of the things that I want to do, I like to do, I like to see more of is really sometimes you can put children in the best place simply by exposing them. And I know I've been, been in a part of a few conversations where folks, you know, folks on one side will say, hey, don't steer my child towards one thing versus the other, let them explore for themselves. Other folks say, hey, you know what, why don't we just throw it in front of them? let them get some sort of exposure and see what they naturally uh, pick up. So just when I think about building and even planning for those future pipelines, what are some of those best practices that you've either seen or have been a part of when we talk about reaching out to high school and middle school students and really thinking about, you know, talent that's going to be in the market, you know, five, 10 years from now? Well, part of what we do is we expose students to things from a culturally relevant perspective. So oftentimes you're talking about science and because students don't make the connection of what science really is, they think that it's hard or they think it's something that they're not interested in. So for example, especially our young black men, they're into sports. So we you know, use a lab that we created called the science of jumping where we show young kids you know, monstrous dunks 
you know, constantly for like five minutes. <laughs> and then, you know, everyone's high, everyone is plugged in and, and dialed in on this, right? Then we start talking about, you know, well, how high is this person jumping? How much, you know, we know you know stats, you know, how, how tall is this person? How much do they weigh? You know, we start getting into that. Then you're starting to see, okay, well, we're, we're getting data points here. Okay. So what's the best way for this athlete to land without hurting their Achilles heel or their ankle or their knees? You know? And then from there, you start understanding physics. And then you're starting to make not only connections with science, but you're also exposing to about three or four different types of careers associated with this one act. So that by the time we're done, we're looking at kinesiology, we're looking at you know physical therapy, we're looking at you know uh, orthopedic surgeons. All of these career pathways are built just from seeing things that students like are connected to already, and not to say or, or quell their dreams and say, hey, don't go into you know, there's 1% of athletes or whatever that make it out of, you know, the million <laughs> kids that are playing, you know, don't be discouraged there. But if it doesn't work out, you know, <laughs> here's four or five different careers that you can land on when you're done. And that's the kind of thing that we're, we're, we're doing to help students look at their career from a different perspective or that they can't play forever. So even if they make it, you know, most athletes are done in seven years, you know? Yeah. And then yeah, the rest of their life, they're stuck, you know, with figuring out where they're going to do life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, options. Yeah, I like it. I think there's, you know, so many different options out there. And even when we think about, you know, during this COVID, these waves, you know, we we collectively, and I'm just seeing this as employers, we collectively have to, to get creative. Um, it's one of those scenes that I kind of live by where it says necessity is the mother of all invention. You know, we have to get creative. We have to continue to offer those resources, you know, to your point, through this digital age, right? And even when I think about the digital perspective, I have to ask you this and to get your perspective, you know, especially you being in the Bay Area, me being in Seattle, and probably folks who are listening from all over, what are we doing or what impact have you seen the quote-unquote digital divide affect some of these initiatives and programs? Well, the digital divide is real. Um, when COVID first hit last year, we had, uh, luckily through a partnership with First Republic Bank, which is our bank, um, they donated uh, laptop computers for our, our Science in the City camp that we did for students. And we opened it up because of COVID to service students from all over the country. Um, so that was one area. Also Comcast, which is a partner of ours and sponsor, you know, they had a program for, you know, low income families, whatever, to have very low cost, high speed internet and broadband. Uh, so uh, otherwise you, you're seeing kids, you know, trying to take classes and do distance learning at a Starbucks or somewhere where they can catch a Wi-Fi. And that's just unacceptable. So there, the digital divide is real and we have to be able to use companies uh, and the city government, et cetera, municipalities to, to make sure that broadband is accessible to all uh, and that people can take advantage of um, doing these programs remotely if necessary. 
Got you. And you know what? I think with that, you know, we as employers, as orgs, as people, generally speaking, you know, we need to we need to consider doing more of our part. It is helpful that, you know, more places are opening, you know, nowadays when we think about libraries, Starbucks, like you mentioned, things like that. But even just with schools getting into the swing of thing and all the numbers, uh, debates on that side of, you know, keeping our kids safe, there needs to be that extension, that greater involvement from, let's just say, if the kids, you know, go back to hybrid schedules, right? Some jurisdictions is all in person, others, it may be a mix, some may still be virtual. So I think that's really important, but even thinking about, and I'm going to broaden this one up to not only just kids, but also let's just fast forward a little bit and consider working professionals with this. So when we think about the world of tech, we, we hear so many, so many different things about tech on any given day, right? On one hand, you know, it's about getting in there. Another hand is about how to prepare. Another hand is, oh, well, well, what do you do once you're in there? And then, of course, you know, from time to time, we hear, you know, some not so positive things about being in tech. So with that being said, how, how, how should we go about really preparing folks, you know, for that kind of how I look at it, that kind of full cycle, that life cycle, you know, of what experience, what life is within the tech industry. Like we know from a career perspective, and I talk to clients and people all the time, you know, tech, there is, there's this, there's this sense of celebrityness that comes with tech, right? You know, once you're making it tech, woo, right? You're somebody in that sense. But how, how are we, how should we go about preparing folks for kind of like good and bad, both sides of the coin, things of that nature? The tech industry is just like any other industry, you know, unfortunately, however, it is, it's very uh, cliquish, you know, I'll be honest with you, a year in before uh, COVID, you know, I had made the decision that um, I wanted to explore um, actually running the diversity program for um, a big company. So I had probably 100 interviews um, the year in 2019, 2020. And, um, you know, very top level, got to the final round of various opportunities. And the biggest criticism that I would get was that, well, I, I've been consulting with Fortune 500 companies, you know, all throughout my 20 plus year career, but <laughs> I don't, uh, I've never actually worked in a tech company. So for whatever reason, you know, I didn't have street cred, uh, so to speak, in order to say that I owned it or run it, ran it internally, you know, for something. So, which was bogus. And this is actually, you know, I got the same information when I tried to work at various nonprofit organizations. You've never worked at a nonprofit organization, like, but I volunteer, I'm on the board of several, like, uh, but that wasn't, because I had never worked in a nonprofit, I, I couldn't run, uh, work there, you know? So I had to create my own, you know, and I had to create my own organization that's in tech. So I've had to create my own legitimacy you know, outside of the industry, so to speak. Uh, so it's kind of crazy making for me, you know, obviously I'm happy where I'm at now at Berkeley Lab, the opportunity really worked out for me. But for me, it's not, it wasn't necessarily ego driven. Like I wasn't trying to be the chief diversity officer or, you know, run anything. It was more about me getting the street cred and getting the experience working inside an organization, having actual colleagues and employees that I work with 
and actually moving the needle and owning that movement as opposed to giving advice and walking away. So, you know, that's what I'm doing now. But like I mentioned to you, there's no reason why I shouldn't have been able to work in a tech company doing what I was doing. But that's the way the industry is. So what can you do? Yeah. And you, you know, you speaking on a lot of real stuff. I say this, you know, at least once an episode, you know, some of the things that my guests have brought up, different points that they made, they could literally be separate episodes, whole new podcast in and of itself. And even just thinking about not only with what you just said, Kevin, even reflecting on my own experiences, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, I've been in HR for about nine, 10 years and year number nine, year number 10, however you want to Look at it. I finally have been able to break the mold and, and to get in, um, you know, just, just with all the things that you mentioned. Now, I think it's interesting that, and this is great because we all have different experiences. Um, I've previously worked in nonprofit as well. And you, and you do kind of see that, you know, you do. Sometimes I feel like nonprofits are like big family run businesses with the way they operate. When you think about that and even just thinking about some of those pitfalls uh, folks tend to face, you know, not having that tech experience or nonprofit or consulting or whatever the case may be. It's one of those things where you're like, damn, well, how do, if you're not going to let me in, how do you expect me to get the experience, even if I'm doing A, B, C, D, and E? So I think you bring up a number of good points, and that really resonates with me for sure. But I think with one of those things, and this kind of makes me look at it now that I'm in, you're a part of tech, lots of people that are listening maybe in the industry, when we think about my brothers or my sister's keepers, you know, what are some of those things that for those who are already, those folks who are already in tech, what are some of those things that we can do or that you encourage folks in tech to do to, to help people get in, to be transparent, to do those things and to talk about, honestly, discussing some of those pitfalls, some of those clicks that you mentioned as well. What are some of those things that we can do to be a better keeper? Well, you know, uh, oftentimes when, and it's kind of reminds me of how the previous generation used to be, you know, when you hear about a good thing, you keep it to yourself, you want to make sure you can get it, you know, you don't want anyone else to beat you out. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not where things are. And that's not what we need to be right now. You know, we everyone needs to get their foot in the door and, and open that door and make sure it stays open for someone else to come in. So although every company you might work at is not going to be the best fit, you want to make sure you leave that organization uh, with the door open and intact so that someone else can come in and do that. Um, Oftentimes, and I share this, and this is probably another podcast episode for you as well, but, but sometimes, you know, I'll say that, you know, if you're coming from Harvard or Yale or Stanford and you don't work out, you know, that company is still going to recruit from Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. You know, I don't care what color you are, <laughs> but if you're coming from Memphis State or, you know, Morgan State or something like that, and this door is open and you come in and get this opportunity and you fail or it doesn't work out, chances are they're not coming back to Morgan State again, you know. And so that's an unfair burden on us uh, as black and brown folks trying to get into tech. But at the same time, that's reality. So we have to make sure that we represent ourselves well. We, um, we leave on our own terms with, with dignity and respect. 
we also keep that door open so that someone else can come in and uh, create whatever they need to create there as well. That's crazy that you kind of mentioned that because it's one of those things and I think, and I'm just trying to remember, I don't see it as much, but I remember even working in different places, even seeing job descriptions out there that sometimes employers will put, you know, if you're from a, what's, what's the term for it? If you're from a tier one school, right? Whatever that means mm -hmm. in that sense, right? You know, we want to recruit here and it kind of puts me in the mindset of PWIs and even thinking about, you know, how that really, how the school and where you go to school that rather makes the difference. So with that being said, you know, do you feel like, or have you seen any examples or evidence of, you know, even with black and brown folks, if they go to a tier one school, they're quote unquote better off than folks who may go to an HBCU or somewhere else like that. I have a strong opinion about that, actually. Um, and I think that, you know, part of the dilemma is, you know, you know, you go to a school where you are one out of, or maybe a handful of you in a 350 person uh, lecture hall for your first math class. And then you have your, um, your first midterm and it's, 280, you know, <laughs> second midterm, 200. By your finals, barely 100 of you still left. The goal is to get as many of you out so that you don't go into a major that is um, difficult or challenging. Whereas going to an HBC or a smaller college where they want you to succeed, they want you to do well, and they want you to graduate, and they give you that support system tell you you can do anything, that confidence that you need, um, especially from our undergraduate perspective, there's no real comparison. There's no real way to, you know, have that discussion. Um, and so for me, you know, having hindsight now, I definitely think that I would have um, probably been better off going to a smaller college, maybe an HBCU primarily, where I would have had that experience. And then I've seen colleagues of mine who've gone to HBCUs, who, you know, my business partner went to Hampton, you know, who's now a PhD professor, a tenured professional now at Stanford, you know. So to, you know, go that route, you know, grad school-wise, the, door, the, the, the doors opened up immensely for them after getting their degree, you know, from an HBCU. So, uh, and from there, it's really where you, write your ticket, you know, going to Harvard or Yale or Stanford, you know, business school or law school is very different from, you know, going there as an undergrad. So that that's uh, an indirect way of stating, you know, obviously what I, my thoughts are, but it's really up to the individual on what they hope to accomplish and what they hope to achieve with their career path. For sure. And I, I tell listeners and uh, soon to be viewers, you know, every time that I have a a video recording with someone, I always say, you know, if y'all could see this person's face, you know, just see the body language. It, it is, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, I never, you know, just being, you know, one Black experience out of millions and billions, it's never one of those things where, you know, we should be thinking about pitting, in a sense, 
uh, PWI Black experience versus HBCU Black experience. And even when we think about HBCUs in general, um, shout out to everybody that's went one. I went to A&T as well, so we know how it is. Um, you know, it's one of those things where we largely talk about HBCUs in the context of undergrad, right? Like HBCUs, generally speaking, haven't built up enough, quote unquote, street cred for doctors and master's programs and things like that. So it's even it's even one of those things where, you know, if it was up to me, you know, I, I, I'd say everybody that identifies as Black, you know, HBCUs in your Black person starter pack, your Black professional starter pack, got to go you know, at least at least one of them. And it's just one of those things where as we continue to to be more inclusive as a society, to to send resources and money to HBCUs ways, you know, I, I want, you know, at least for the next few generations for students to say, hey, you know what, I can go to an A&T or FAMU or Howard just as much as I can go to an NYU or Cornell or Harvard right, or MIT or anything like that. So I definitely think, you know, we, we got some work to do from an education side. And Kevin, to your point, that that's a whole nother topic in and of itself. But it's one of those things where, you know, I think it's, it's important uh, for organizations to consider that. It's also important to, if it was up to me, to kind of dismantle that notion of tier schools, right? You know, we don't need to put, in my opinion, at least, we don't need to put uh, schools on totem poles and all that good stuff. And uh, with that being said, here's one of the things that, you know, I've had to learn some tough lessons as well. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. So Kevin, Matt, I'm talking to myself, those who are listening to this episode, let's take a couple of years back. Let's go back to when you first came out of undergrad or graduate school or whatever the case may be. And you got your first real job and you're going in there, whether it's tech or not, you're going in there, you're excited. Maybe you're in your field, maybe you're not, but you have many different people, many different perspectives that you have to work with. So when I think about this kind of thing, and I'm just thinking about to Matt from 10 years ago, this idea, this notion of preparing students, professionals, even a sense, for what I consider intergenerational workplaces, right? Folks who've been there 40 years versus 20 years versus 10 years, newbies. So thinking about how people in different generations work is very different, especially for us as millennials in there. I think now generation X or Y or Z or whatever generation we own, how, how do you kind of encourage, especially some of the younger professionals to say, hey, you know what, this, in a sense, this isn't school no more. So these are some of the things that you kind of got to prepare, you know, if your boss is, you know, a 60 year old or 70 year old or 50 year old or something like that. How do we, how do we kind of win and navigate the intergenerational uh, aspects of going anywhere to work? For me, it's really about treating people as human beings. I mean, I talk about this all the time in the work that I do. At the end of the day, I come from an industry where um, first and second year lawyers are working like slaves practically, you know, for the partner, um, giving up weekends, giving up their vacations, making sure that briefs and things like that get filed on time, et cetera. And then, um, you know, when they ask for this or ask for that, they usually get told no, 
uh, you know, I want to honor my family vacation. I want to see my daughter's, you know, recital or whatever the case may be. And then you look up and that same first and second year associate becomes a third and fourth year associate, get picked off by Google or Facebook or LinkedIn as in-house counsel. Then that particular person becomes the, the, the client and is that representative of that firm. And that person who said no, worked them to death, is now the person who has to go through them for work. And that happens all the time. So I talk to people and I teach people, you, you never know who's going to be your boss. You never know when now. you're going to be your boss, right? Yep. <laughs> so yep. Come on. <laughs> the way you treat people is how you expect to be treated, you know? So um, I always say, you know, the, the way that this stuff works, you know, and especially now with tools before we didn't have them, but now that we have tools like LinkedIn and I've been on LinkedIn since probably like 2006, but I've been able to reconnect with people that I worked with and would have never guessed, you know, following them and staying with them, what they're doing 10 years from now, 15 years from now, from when we first met and connected. And so you never know who you're going to need, when you're going to need and for what. So how you live your life now is very important. Real, real quick story as well. I tell, I tell my students the same thing. People underestimate, you know, even your friendships from high school. I always ask my students, I say, look, how many people have heard of Snapchat and have it on their phone? You know, everyone raises their hand. I said, how many people saw the Black Panther movie? And then everyone raises their hand. I said, Bob Murphy and Ryan Coogler went to St. Mary's High School like me. They were there in school almost around the same time, if not the same time. <laughs> so who would have thought that two kids in the same high school or near the same class would go on and create things that would change the world and make them billionaires? Yeah. I, I mean, you never know who's sitting next to you or what people are able to accomplish or achieve coming from the same place where you're coming from. So. I'm going to get off. I'm going to stop preaching. But, you know, <laughs> right. I'm that, Kevin, that might be a whole podcast right there, Kevin. <laughs> but no, you, you, you bring up a lot of good points. I think it's one of those situations where, yes, you never know who will become your boss. Uh, one of the things that I preach about on this platform all the time is humanizing others, right? I've done, I've done different conversations, different episodes on humanizing HR humanizing your bosses, humanizing your coworkers, et cetera. And it's, it's so funny how life throws curveballs in a way that changes sometimes for the good, but also sometimes for the bad. Even just when I think about, shoot, people who I was in high school with or middle school, you know, you always have those people that are still home, right? In that sense, doing the things that they've been doing, you know, even since high school, and you have other people that, you know, get out, escape quote unquote if you will make it out all that good stuff and you know they're they're the next leaders you know the next film directors all that good stuff so it's it's kind of crazy just to see how life not only treats people but also where folks you know end up at and you know I know we're having some great conversation Kevin but I gotta I gotta talk about this one last thing you know for a little bit thinking about emerging talent thinking about the current uh, I would say the current generation we're in, the current work situation we're in, the current insert whatever we're in, and we talk about mental health. You know, we're dealing with, and when I say we, just thinking about organizations as a whole, 
we're dealing with what I consider a lot of conscious candidates, right? A lot of candidates that are woke for lack of better words in mental health and psychological safety are high up at an all time high, in my opinion, on, you know, candidates wish lists that, hey, you know what? Yes, I want a great salary benefits, all that. But I want to know, similar to your story, Kevin, you know, I want to know that you're not going to work me like a slave. I want to know that I can have a mental health day or two. So when we think about, you know, explaining and really digging into mental health for those who will be coming into the workforce or who are trying to transition, what are some of those things that, you know, you want to highlight and you want to make sure that folks kind of understand when we think about mental health and psychological safety in the workplace? Well, uh, you know, when I think of, when I think of, you know, mental health in the workplace, I always think of work-life balance. And recently um, I interviewed Shelly Archambault. Um, she's a former CEO of Metricstream and is on the board of a number of Fortune 500 companies. And this is for an event, that, an online event that I'm working on uh, this fall. And she corrected me. She's like, no, Kevin, there's no such thing as work-life balance. You know, it's all about priorities. And, and having mental health be a key component in making that a priority. It's never going to be in balance, um, but you have to make it a priority. So taking that, you know, part of what I do is I feel it's imperative to have a lot of different other things combating the stresses that you have at work. So I started with a, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Benson. We started Family Wellness Group uh, over seven or eight years ago now. And um, basically uh, take black and brown folks hiking every weekend. And now we've moved up to biking and we do you know, a trip or some type of quarterly event um, been slow during COVID, but now coming back out, but getting out, teaching people how to exercise and also how to eat right during the week so that you can enjoy the outdoors um, on the weekend is something that I think is very vital and very important for people to, to take um, full advantage of. I also do this with our students. We teach mindfulness, we teach yoga, and we, one of our camps is an overnight camping conference in the wilderness. So students actually learn what it's like to have their phones die, you know, for a weekend. No cell coverage, <laughs> no batteries to charge them. They actually have to interact with other human beings, you know. And this is very important to have this yin and yang when it comes to being on constantly being connected to our devices and being having that seep into our private lives, our perfect personal lives um, at work. Now that we're most of us are working remotely, the it's blurred lines when nine to five begins and ends, you know. So making sure that we protect our time and protect our our mindfulness of, of our, our minds is key. Yeah, I uh, even just thinking about COVID, you know, we, we've been in this shoot at this point, you know, really uh, oncoming two years uh, next year. But with this being said, you know, I feel like COVID has acted as a catalyst in, in so many different areas, right? It's, 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 it's exposing a lot or has exposed a lot. 
you know, we got a lot to work on as a society and the list goes on and on. But even just as we think about mental health as a form of physical health, right, as a form of spiritual health, you know, just thinking about even some of the things that I've done during this pandemic, it's like, all right, everyone or a lot of people, I'm sure, start off this thing like, I'm not going outside. No, right? We're not going to get COVID, all that good stuff. So you got some folks, and I was just talking to someone about this the other day, you know, it's okay if you put on that COVID-19, right? Similar to them freshman <laughs> 15s back in the day. It's all right, but it's also right. one of those things where as a result, or as an exchange, if people are more hesitant about going outside to do indoor things, there's that opportunity to get outside, like you mentioned, to have programs that are more outdoor-based, to hopefully live in areas where it is outdoorsy. I know California is one of those places. I'll say uh, Washington is definitely one of those places where, you know, hey, if you don't want to go to the gym, you know, get out, take a hike, take a walk. Or, you know, just do something that gets you moving. Sometimes the great outdoors is is often therapeutic, you know, especially if you live in an area where, you know, the landscape is beautiful and all that, you know, now if you in flatter places, I don't know, like Texas or somewhere like that, I don't know. We're going to have to work with it. But needless to say, I'm sure there's a good trail or path some way. But even with that, you know, I was telling my wife the other day, Kevin, I was like, look, honey, it'd be crazy if I went to the gym just to get COVID and, and contradict my whole, and contradict my whole, you know, uh, health and well-being in, in that sense. So it's one of those things where in addition to uh, going outside, you know, we ended up getting a Peloton, you know, so just, just something that for me, and I'll just pick on me, it's, it's, it's therapeutic in a number of different ways. You know, number one, you get that workout. Uh, you feel good afterwards, but number two, at least for me, the way I treat my workouts, whether I'm outdoors or not, you know, it's it's a good time to release a lot of mental things that are going on in your head. In addition to, of course, you know, going to see a therapist or anything like that. But it's just one of those things where if we as employers are going to continue to maintain that competitive spirit to bring in that diverse talent, to bring in that emergent talent, it's, it's, it's a thing where we have to make sure, you know, we don't we don't go corrupting the next generation from the beginning. Um, and just to be more mindful, because I tell you what, uh, candidates out there are certainly demanding it. And the organizations that can't pivot or don't pivot in enough time will get left behind. So it's, yeah. it's serious out there, Kevin. It's serious. I agree. Yeah. And I just think, you know, I feel like we could we could keep going on and on and on about this kind of topic. But for those of you that are listening, you know me, I always like, you know, looking at certain things that we tend to hold to ourselves from an HR perspective and broaden them up. You know, emerging talent isn't just about talent acquisition necessarily and just finding where that talent is, but it's also the full cycle. It's also, you know, thinking about, hey, what are we doing to reach out to the kids in high school and middle school? What are we doing to think about really having transparent conversations to say, hey, whether it's tech, consulting, you know, banking, whatever the case may be, here's some of the things that you can expect. So Kevin, before we get out of here, you know, what are you up to? What's going on? What can we expect out of Kevin? Well, um, I'm busy working on some things. Uh, I, there are 
I guess, three different areas of things that I focus on. So obviously always working on addressing the lack of diversity in the tech industry. So I'll keep doing that. That will be through events or um, other things like that. I've also been having some traction organized. I've had two of the oldest LinkedIn groups um, available. Um, my LinkedIn downtown San Francisco networking group and my Bay Area Black Professionals group. And both are kind of um, in a cocoon phase, but we'll be coming out with some uh, butterflies um, this fall. So we'll see um, what manifests itself from that. Then my family wellness group, things are picking up and we've got next month a, uh, a weekend hike in uh, Big Sur, Monterey area. So I'm looking forward to that and doing more activities outdoors, getting more people out there as well. And then the last thing is always organizing, doing things politically. So I've got a couple of, 2022 is gonna be very important for midterm elections. I also have a friend who's from your state, you said North Carolina AT. I think, well, yes, sir. I think she's from South Carolina, but I have a sister that's out there that's running for governor who mm -hmm. I intend to uh, bring out here and allow the Bay Area folks to be able to meet and see. So uh, I do a lot in politics behind the scenes, but really want to get people that are um, doing amazing things out there to raise money and, and also get elected and do things for their constituents. So you can expect to see those things happening uh, for me in the near future. Sounds good. You're always up to something, which is always a great thing. Always staying productive and, you know, just want to say I appreciate you having having you on the show. Before we get out of here for real this time, Kevin, how can people follow you? How can they continue the conversation and join you on social media? They can always find me on the website, thesocialengineer.org. They can connect with me on LinkedIn um, slash KL Nichols. They can also follow all of our socials. So at social E-N-G-P-R-O-G on Twitter and Instagram. Those are our handles for uh, um, the Social Engineering Project. And I mean, there's a shameless ploy, but go to social media or go to the socialengineer.org and make a donation to our organization. Always do that. Sounds good. Well, no, thank you so much, Kevin. And y'all, y'all definitely follow Kevin. Uh, great, great source of resources, knowledge, and we'll talk to you all day long about, uh, Kevin, what was you telling me? Uh, politics, health, and what's the third one that you always talk about? Tech. Tech. So politics, health, and tech. He's a, he's a great person to talk to and definitely someone you want to have uh, with your networks. But for those of you that are listening, as usual, y'all know how I do it by now. Follow Young Black HR at, you guessed it, Young Black HR on your favorite social media platform and keep the conversation going. Continue the journey. Take it to your friends, your cousins, your mamas and thems, and just keep things going. But until next week, until next time, until the next conversation, this has been an amazing episode of the Young Black HR Podcast. Make sure you connect with today's guests on social media accounts. And if you haven't already, bookmark and check out our website at honesthumanresources.com for your career-related needs. Also connect with Young Black HR on your favorite platform at, you guessed it, Young Black HR. You can locate us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, I am your host, Matthew Kirby, 
and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Tune in to next week's episode.